Good evening, my friends. It's so wonderful to be here with you and to worship God with you this evening. Uh, I met many of you before services, but if we haven't met before, uh, let me introduce myself. My name's Noah Howard, and I hail from Oklahoma, but right now I'm living in Florida in the city of Tallahassee and working with the church there. And I want to thank you so much for holding this meeting and for uh, inviting me to speak for you from the Word of God. Tonight I want to talk to you some about the Bible. You know, the Bible is really the most influential book in history. There's never been a book quite like the Bible, if you think about it. Since 1947, the United Bible Society has handed out over 9 billion Bibles. Now, to put that into perspective, Harry Potter Book 7, which is one of the most printed books of all time, it sold 12 million copies worldwide when it came out. 25 million copies of the Bible are sold every year in the U.S. alone. The Bible's the most shoplifted book of all time. Friends, people are interested in the Bible. They want to know what the Bible has to say. They can't get enough of it. But you know, at the same time, there's never been a book that was so viciously attacked either. And that's because it's no ordinary book. It's like the psalmist said. The psalmist said about God's word, its laws are perfect, converting the soul. Its judgments are righteous. Its words sweeter than honey. And as people find, the demands of the Bible are uncompromising. And this makes the Bible dangerous. There is a war on in the hearts and minds of men over the Bible. Either the Bible is everything that it claims to be as far as being the word of God, or it's the greatest scam in human history. And there's no in-between. So friends, we need to be ready to give a defense about what we believe about the Bible. And that's what I want to do through this sermon this evening. I would like to test and to examine and to prove the Bible as no ordinary book, but the inspired Word of God. And to that end, I want to answer this question. Is the Bible text reliable? You know, how often have you heard people say something like, we can't really be sure that we have the Bible I mean, just look at all the different copies, look at all the different translations, and they all seem to differ with each other, don't they? In fact, Muslims say that the Bible has been corrupted and only the Quran is fully God's word. The Mormons will say that the Bible is corrupted, except uh, where it, the Bible is corrupted in places where it differs from the Book of Mormon. Uh, and then, you know, there's liberal theologians and skeptics who uh, attack the Bible and insist that it has been altered as it has been passed down through history. Now, we believe that the Bible is the supernaturally inspired word of God. As it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But the question is, can we prove that? 
And can we prove it with more than just saying, well, the Bible says it's inspired, and so therefore it is inspired. This is going to be a little bit of a different study than I normally give. There's not as many scriptures in here as I usually use. And that's because I want to share with you some of the history and some of the archaeology behind the Bible. And I think you're going to see that even before we open the pages of the Bible, it's not just another book. It really is the Word of God. So I want to answer this question. Is the Bible text reliable? Maybe you've never considered that question before, but I'm sure it's going to come up in your conversations with your friends and with your neighbors. So let's be ready to give an answer to that question. When you take and you hold an English Bible in your hands, what is this that you are holding? I think most of us here would answer that this is the Word of God. And you would be right about that. When we say that the Bible is the Word of God, we mean that its production was inspired and overseen by the Holy Spirit. And that means, therefore, that the Bible is free from errors and its contents are authoritative to our lives today. See, but there's a problem. God did not drop this Bible that I'm holding right here out of the sky and into my hands. It's the product of human publishers. And so we have some questions. For example, was the typesetting and the printing process inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore free from error? Well, I think a lot of us would answer no. The things like the page numbers and the margin notes and the verse, the, the verse numbers, they weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit and they might contain typos. They might have mistakes. What about the translators of, say, the New King James Version? Were they inspired by the Holy Spirit? Well, if we're being honest, again, we have to answer no. The New King James translators were uninspired and capable of making mistakes. And if we're being honest, sometimes they did make mistakes in how they translated things. What about the scribes who made copies of the original Greek and Hebrew writings that make up the Bible? Were they overseen by the Holy Spirit? Again, we have to answer no, because of the more than 5,000 New Testament manuscripts that have been unearthed, none of them are exactly alike. They contain differences. And sometimes these men who copied the Bible made mistakes. Now, what about those original documents that were written by the apostles and the prophets, were they overseen by the Holy Spirit so as to be free from error and authoritative for us? The answer is yes, absolutely. There were no errors or contradictions or problems with the originals. So, yes, the Bible is the Word of God, and its contents are, inherent, uh, are instructive and authoritative and inerrant. But you see, this English Bible that we have, it was the product of men who were uninspired and who could make 
mistakes. They worked very valiantly to make the inspired word of God available to us in a language we can understand. But at the end of the day, sometimes they made mistakes. So the question is, how do we know that no significant changes or errors were made in this process of copying the scriptures and preserving these documents over the centuries. You know, this problem would be easy to solve if we had the originals, those original manuscripts written by the apostles and the prophets. But as far as we know, we don't have those today. They're not available for us to compare to see if errors have entered in. But I want you to know, the issues that face the Bible are not unique to the Bible. In fact, many other ancient historical documents have uh, been copied and the originals have been lost over time. Let's look at a few examples. Uh, Homer's famous work, The Iliad, maybe you read that in school. We don't have the original copy uh, of that. All we have are copies of copies of copies. Uh, Herodotus's histories, one of the only sources we have about the Persian and the early Greek empires. Julius Caesar's history about his conquest in Gaul. Livy's history of Rome, which covers nearly 770 years of Roman history. And Tacitus's history, which picks up where Livy left off. We don't have the originals for any of these ancient works. And yet modern scholars have successfully reconstructed their contents from the surviving copies. And, you know, they might debate over the opinions of the writers or the intentions of the writers. But as for the contents, there's no question. They accept these texts. And that's because they use what's called the bibliographic test. And the questions on this test look at how a text is transmitted over time, and it helps us establish whether it's reliable or not. It can help us figure out if the copies are faithful representatives of the original. And there are four questions raised by this test. First of all, how many copies of the document are available? Of course, we want as many copies as we can get our hands on so that we can compare them to see where they differ and which version of the text is most accurate. Second of all, where were these copies found? If they all came from one place, perhaps they were purposefully altered. But if they came from places far removed in time and in location, then it's unlikely that their contents may have been changed. The third question is, what length of time passed between the original document and the earliest copies? If the earliest copy we have was written a thousand years after the original, a lot of changes could have entered in a, that we're not aware of. But if there's a short interval of time there, it increases our assurance that the text is accurate. And then fourth, what kind of variances exist between the copies? If all the copies that you have are filled with significant differences, then it might not be possible to know what the original uh, said. But if the variances are few and minor, then 
you can be assured that the process of copying over the years was faithful to the original. Now, how do you think the New Testament stacks up if we apply these questions to it? How do you think the New Testament compares to some of these other historical documents? Well, I want to show you today that not only does the New Testament pass the test, but it passes with flying colors. In fact, it puts the competition to shame. Let's look at this first question. How many copies of the documents are available? As far as the competition goes, the Iliad, we have 1,800 existing copies thereabout. For Herodotus's histories, 109. Caesar's Gallic Wars, 251. Livy's History of Rome, about 60 copies. And Tacitus's History, about 31 copies. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, the current number of New Testament Greek manuscripts stands at almost 6,000. And let's break this number down so you can see what these different sources are. There's a few different sources for New Testament copies. First of all, there is papyri. Now, papyri are fragments of the New Testament written on an early form of paper. What they would do is they would take this plant called the papyrus plant. It's a reed. And they would cut it into thin strips and weave the strips together to form a lattice work, and then they would dry it out. And it forms uh, a sort of paper. And you can glue several sheets of this paper together and turn it into a scroll. Now, the problem is that papyrus gets brittle as it gets older, and it can disintegrate very easily. That's why we don't have very many papyri, just 128 or so. But the ones that we do have are some of the oldest copies of the New Testament, dating back to the early 2nd century and to the 3rd century. So that's the first kind we have. We also have unseals. These come uh, a little bit later in history, and this is a type of parchment. Parchment is leather made from dried animal skin. And as you can imagine, that makes it a little sturdier than papyrus, and so it survives the passage of time a little better. But also, this form of writing came later than the earlier papyri. Now, we also have minuscules, and these came right after unseals in the Middle Ages. And that explains why we have so many of them. Because they were produced in the Middle Ages, they're younger copies, and therefore in better shape. We also have lectionaries from the Middle Ages, and a lectionary is a compilation of scripture reading that would be used in a Catholic or an Orthodox church. And when you find a lectionary, you know it's coming from the Middle Ages, the 10th to the 15th centuries. So when we combine these four kinds of documents, we end up with about 5,838 different copies of the New Testament, either in part or in whole. Now that already is a huge number by which you can reconstruct the New Testament, but there's two other kinds of documents we haven't even mentioned yet. You know, Greek was the common language 
of the Mediterranean world during the first century. But as you can imagine, not everybody spoke Greek or were not native speakers, and they wanted the Bible in their own native tongue. And so very early on, translations of the New Testament were made into other languages, like Latin and Coptic, which is uh, one of the languages of Egypt, uh, Armenian, Arabic. People were making ancient translations of the Bible. And so when you account for these ancient versions and you compare them to the Greek uh, manuscripts of the New Testament, now the number comes up to 24,362 thereabouts. But there's a third and a very important source from which we construct, reconstruct the New Testament called the patristic citations. Now what that means is, you see, there were individuals who were Christians living in the third century or the second century, and they produced commentaries and sermons and books and other such writings on the New Testament. Maybe you've heard of men like Augustine and Tertullian and Eusebius. Now, these men were uninspired, but we can look at their sermons and where they quote the New Testament, and we can compare that to those Greek manuscripts and the ancient translations, and we have yet another way to reconstruct the New Testament. Now, we have nearly 36 thousand quotations from these men of the New Testament. In fact, scholars say that if you didn't have the Greek manuscripts and the ancient versions, you could still reconstruct the New Testament just from quotations from these men's sermons and commentaries. When we add the numbers up, now we're at nearly 60,651 New Testament manuscripts. So we have a huge number of sources from which to reconstruct the New Testament. Now, what about where these copies were found? We found manuscripts all over the Mediterranean region, from Greece to Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Italy. They've been found in Egyptian burial tombs and monastic libraries and caves and all sorts of hiding places. Now, skeptics have tried to suggest that such a large number of copies must mean that the Bible's been susceptible to editing by all sorts of you know, groups with malicious purposes. But really, there's so many copies coming from so many varied locations in the world, it would have been essentially impossible for anyone to try to collaborate and to change these copies of the scriptures to promote a certain reading of the text. Now, how about the length of time that's passed between these copies? Again, let's compare some other ancient historical works. We've got the Iliad, and there is 400 years between when the original was written and the earliest surviving copy that we have. Herodotus's histories, 1,350 years. Gallic Wars, 950 years. Livy's history of Rome, 400 years. And Tacitus's history of Rome, 950 years. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we have copies of the New Testament in part 
that date back to within 50 to 100 years of when the originals were written. That's amazing. In fact, here's some pictures. This is the Chester Beatty papyri. Uh, papyri. A portion of this dates back to the third century, very close to the beginning. The John Ryland's papyri contains verses from John chapter 18, which date back to about A.D. 130. Now think about that. John's gospel was written very likely near the end of the first century. We have this papyri from the beginning of the second century. This manuscript is old enough to be one of the first copies of the book of John. That's amazing. Now, admittedly, you can see these fragments are incomplete. But we have several very nearly complete New Testament manuscripts within 300 to 400 years of the originals. For example, this is the Codex Sinaiticus, dates back to A.D. 350. And it has the entire New Testament and most of the Septuagint. That's the Old Testament from which Jesus quoted when he preached. And so again, the New Testament is beating these works of antiquity by a very large margin. But what about that fourth question? Let's talk about those variances and those differences that exist between the New Testament manuscripts. You know, you often hear skeptics raise objections on this point. They like to bring up, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of differences between all these copies. And that must therefore enshroud the true authentic text of the Bible. Maybe you've heard somebody protest, how would you even know if you were reading an altered version of the Bible? You know, it's true that errors and problems can happen in any stage of a human work, even the production and printing of the Bible. But I want you to know that these are not the crippling errors that skeptics make them out to be. I want to give you an example here. Back in 1631, there was one edition of the King James Version which included a very dramatic and unfortunate typo that led to it being called the Wicked Bible. You see, the printer accidentally omitted the word not from Exodus 20, verse 14, which caused the passage to read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Now, obviously, there's a major problem here. There's a significant difference between thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt commit adultery. But, you know, this misprint didn't cause any major disruption to Christian theology. It didn't cause a split in the church because people very easily identified this as a mistake and they dismissed it. The pure original text was still discernible here. And that's because although about a thousand copies of the Wicked Bible were distributed, there were millions of Bibles that didn't have the misprint. And furthermore, no Bible printed before 1631 included it. And furthermore, no Bible outside of the English language included it. And then the reading was inconsistent with the text. It's very strange to go from thou shalt not kill, thou shalt commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and so on. 
people saw that it didn't fit. And people also saw that it was contrary to the clear teaching of other scriptures. If this scripture was right, then other parts of the scripture were wrong and contradictory. So all of these points helped people identify the error and to disregard it. And so, friends, we're not troubled by the wicked Bible. We're not troubled by versions such as the slave Bible, which slave owners produced in order to remove scriptures that condemned the practice of New World slavery. These sorts of versions don't undermine the inerrancy and the authority of the scriptures because the problem's with the translation. It's not with the original scriptures written by the apostles and the prophets. In fact, when it comes to the transmission of the Bible, integrity has been the rule rather than the exception. I want to read you uh, a quote from a Jewish scribe describing the process of copying the Bible. You know, a lot of people get worried about this idea that for 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus to 1,400 years after the birth of Jesus, when the printing press was invented, the only method of making copies of a book was by handwriting it. And people get worried about that. But I want to remind you that extreme efforts were made by these folks who were doing this to preserve the integrity of the text. These were professional scribes or they were believers who were convinced that the accuracy of their work was a matter of eternal life and death. Listen to this quote about the scribal process. It says, In making copies of Hebrew manuscripts, which are the precious heritage of the church today, the Jewish scribes exercised the greatest possible care, even to the point of superstition, counting not only the words, but every letter, noting how many times each particular letter occurred, and destroying at once the sheet on which a mistake was detected. In their anxiety to avoid the introduction of the least error into the sacred scripture, which they prized so highly and held in such reverent awe. Each new copy had to be made from an approved manuscript written with a special kind of ink upon sheets made from the skin of a clean animal. The writers also had to pronounce aloud each word before writing it. And on no account was a single word to be written from memory. They were to reverently wipe their pen before writing the name of God in any form and to wash their whole bodies before writing Yahweh, lest the holy name be tainted even in the writing. The new copy was then carefully examined with the original almost immediately. And it is said that if only one incorrect letter was discovered, the whole copy was destroyed. It's recorded how one reverent rabbi solemnly warned a scribe thus, Take heed how thou doest thy work, for thy work is the work of heaven, lest thou drop or add a letter of the manuscript, and so become a destroyer of the world. Friends, the people who were doing this copying were concerned with the integrity of their work. They took great pains to make sure mistakes and errors didn't enter in to the text. But you know, 
like we said, mistakes happen even in human endeavors. And they did happen from time to time in this process of copying the Bible. In fact, there's a whole field of study on this topic called textual criticism. And there are scholars who spend their whole lives identifying and sorting through these variants and accounting for them. I want you to know that responsible scholars of this field do not consider these variants problematic. In fact, most of them are accounted for as simply typos. You know, earlier we mentioned how sometimes people number the amount of variances between the manuscripts as over 400,000, hundreds of thousands of errors. And it's important to note that a lot of people dispute the accuracy of that number. It's a bit disingenuous. In fact, the majority of these variants are of no concern. They're things like punctuation and word order, insignificant phrasing differences, repetition of words and obvious misspellings, phrases from one part of the Bible accidentally being inserted into another part. Words or phrases that were accidentally skipped and differences over what to call a person or a place. These are very minor differences and there's virtually no impact from these differences on matters of morality or ethics or Christian theology. In fact, you know, when we set these aside, the agreement between these more than 5,000 New Testament manuscripts and 9,000 manuscripts in other languages and 36,000 quotations from the early church fathers comes to more than 99%. In other words, the questionable passages represent less than half of 1% of the New Testament text. Now, considering that these manuscripts are coming from thousands of different copyists over dozens of different regions, spanning 1,300 years of history, friends, this degree of accuracy is unprecedented. In fact, an honest scholar will, will admit that this is uncanny. Josh McDowell, who was a former agnostic, wrote this. He said, after trying to shatter the, hist the historicity and validity of the scripture, I came to the conclusion that they are historically trustworthy. If one discards the Bible as being unreliable, then he must discard almost all literature of antiquity. One problem I constantly face is the desire on the part of many to apply one standard or test to secular literature and others to the Bible. One needs to apply the same test, whether the literature under investigation is secular or religious. Having done this, I believe one can hold the scriptures in his hand and say the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable. You see, friends, the New Testament not only stacks up with other accepted historical documents from the same time period, but it puts the competition to shame. And that's because it's no ordinary book. We're talking about the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. 
Now, between us and those originals written by the apostles and the prophets that contained no error, there's hundreds of years of human effort to inspire and uh, to, uh, to preserve the word of God and to make it available to ordinary people in a language that they can read and can understand. And in those human efforts, mistakes have been made and must be overcome in our efforts to understand the scriptures. But the truth is you can identify these mistakes and you can overcome them. And no mistake has been so serious as to cast doubt on the Christian faith. Friends, this is a complicated subject. It's a whole field of study for scholars. And I rely upon their expertise. But the important thing to understand is that by God's providence, His Word has remained accessible to people. These problems can be overcome. The truth can be known and believed and obeyed. And friends, that's the point of this study. Don't miss the conclusion of this study and everything we've just talked about. The point is you can have confidence that the Bible you are holding in your hands has not been corrupted. The integrity of the text is not in doubt. This really is the testimony of men like Peter and Paul and James and John and countless others who encountered Jesus Christ and whose lives were changed forever. And they invite you to read and to examine their testimony and to weigh the evidence and to prove the Bible is the word of God for yourself. You know, this sermon was really inspired by an old poem called Old Hammers. I'd like to read it to you. I think it sums up the issues we've talked about here very well. It says, Last eve I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in upon the floor, uh, I saw old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so, I thought, the anvil of God's word for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. And friends, that's right. Countless attacks have been mounted. Countless efforts have been made to destroy or to discredit the Scriptures. Opponents have come and gone, but friends, it's still here. The Bible still remains. And friends, that's no coincidence because it really is the inspired Word of God. It's no ordinary book. And so the question to you this evening is, what are you going to do about it? You see, everything that the Bible has to say about the danger of sin 
and the urgency of eternal judgment and salvation in Jesus Christ. It's all true. So what's holding you back from becoming a Christian? The testimony is real. As Jesus said in John 3 verse 5, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, that's the call to you this evening as we close our study. We want to invite you to become a Christian if you're not. It's time to take this seriously because the Bible is no ordinary book. It's time for you to open it up and to weigh the testimony to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to obey Him in baptism. As He described in Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Only then can you have the assurance of eternal life in heaven. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.